If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Lots going on today. Uh, of course, the big news, Gordon Lightfoot passing away at the age of 84. We'll talk about that in just a second. But on the opposite end of the emotional spectrum, Leafs tonight at home against the Florida Panthers. going to be fascinating to see how that all progresses as uh, Leaf fans are pretty excited uh, tonight. Uh, in the House of Commons, the Prime Minister continually uh, being hammered again from all members of the opposition in regard to election interference and uh, specifically in regard to MP Michael Chang, who ha- was involved and caught up in uh, Chinese Communist Party election interference. Uh, this has been exposed, another one from the Globe and Mail, uh, and of course a leak from CISA saying that this is uh, um, happening. And in the House of Commons yesterday, everybody rose and said uh, pretty much the same thing. This has got to stop uh, once it starts affecting the families and friends of uh, sitting MPs and such, uh, obviously somebody has got to take some action. Uh, We're still waiting for the Prime Minister to uh, do all of that. Uh, The uh, diplomat that uh, was accused of all of this is still in Canada. He has not been expelled, and we've heard no more on that. Uh, The same with a uh, registry system, which there's lots of chatter about, but this... uh, this obvious uh, information continues to sprout out of CSIS and is not going away. Uh, hopefully we can get the Prime Minister to take this seriously and finally do something now that MPs are being harassed uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. Of course, this, these have been the allegations from Global News and the Globe and Mail uh, from leaked CSIS documents over the last not one but two elections. The Prime Minister has known about this, his office has known about this, and he has failed to do anything because it normally benefits the Liberal Party of Canada. So there we are. Uh, all right. The other big story, uh, as obviously we mentioned, Gordon Lightfoot passing away, age of uh, 84, uh, died in a Toronto hospital uh, last night. And uh, you might remember just a few weeks ago. And it was interesting. Somebody had pointed this out, that um, he didn't really have a farewell tour. He never really stopped touring. He just kept going. And even when he got sick, he'd recover, recuperate, and he'd be back out on the road again and would play an annual stint at Massey Hall in Toronto for like five or six days every year. It was sort of a residency there that he would do uh, every single year. And uh, again, he was scheduled with a, a, uh, a firm schedule right through the end of this year, including through the summer and such. And most recently, just a few weeks ago, they had canceled uh, those shows throughout the summer and fall uh, because he was having health issues. So uh, even when he was sick, he still wanted to continue to tour. He still continued and wanted to continue to play. And uh, obviously, when it got to the point where he couldn't, uh, that's when these tours and these appearances, uh, you know, were obviously canceled. But the uh, the list of stars that have recorded his songs, and you think uh, even back in the day, if you wrote the music, uh, you were paid handsomely. Uh, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Hank Williams Jr., Bob Dylan, Barbara Streisand. I mean, think about that. Those are some of the top names 
in music over the years uh, have all recorded his songs and obviously spoke uh, very highly of him. Uh, Robbie Robertson of the band called uh, Gordon Lightfoot a natural, sorry, national treasure. And uh, as well, Bob Dylan uh, himself uh, wished that his songs could last forever. Bob Dylan, of course, was the one who um, uh, was at the Juno Awards way back when and inducted uh, Gordon Lightfoot into uh, the Canadian uh, Music Hall of Fame. Uh, we've lost one of the greatest songwriters, says the Prime Minister. He has co- uh, commented on all of it as well, as a lot of uh, politicians have. He was born Gordon Meredith Lightfoot Jr. in Aurelia, November 17th, 1938. A natural musician, a natural talent as a child. His mother uh, picked up on that as early as grade four when he sang an Irish lullaby to his insti- entire school over the PA system uh, with the morning announcements. Uh, once he got into high school, he was able to hone his talents, taught himself how to play folk guitar, and opted not to attend university in Canada. Instead, he moved to California in 1958 and studied jazz composition and orchestration at Hollywood's Westlake College of Music. So took off down to L.A. to go to school, and after making ends meet by writing and producing commercial jingles, uh, being a true Canadian, he missed the country too much, and he moved back uh, north of the border in 1960. And then after that, other than touring, he never left. He was up here. This was his home and would tour from uh, from here, whether he was working in the U.S. or Europe or uh, wherever he was around the world. Uh, in Toronto, quickly found himself uh, performing with the Swinging Eight, the Swinging Eight on CBC's Country Hoedown. <laughs> and uh, first regional hit, Remember Me, I'm the One, in 1962. Then went to the U.K., a brief hosting uh, stint on the BBC for their country and western show. That's exactly what it was called. And then uh, made an appearance at the Mariposa Folk Festival in 1964. Started to get a bit of a reputation as a result of this and uh, got signed to United Artists in 1965. And then he appeared on The Tonight Show with uh, Johnny Carson, showed up at the Newport uh, Folk festival as well and quickly was one of those stars that uh on any one of those festivals or shows uh gordon lightfoot was uh was a mainstay um not only uh did he uh, uh represent canada he actually wrote the canadian railroad trilogy in 1967 to celebrate canada's centennial uh, and of course, you know, obviously uh, nationally, a, a huge song here. Uh, recording in 1967 called Black Day in July, referring to the Detroit racial riots and such. Uh, some radio stations in Detroit actually uh, wouldn't play it because it was a quote protest song. Uh, when he his record company didn't really defend him, uh, he ended up signing uh, with another record company after that. Was diagnosed with Bell's palsy in the 1970s and uh, cut down on his appearance, but still, even in the 1990s, was doing like 50 shows uh, a year. So sad day, uh, the loss of a Canadian treasure, Gordon Lightfoot, uh, passing away. So there you go. I guess the big news of the day is uh, Gordon Lightfoot has uh, passed away, Canadian icon and such. And then what might cripple you as far as the entertainment industry, uh, the Writers Guild has gone on strike. And apparently, uh, the late-night shows are already impacted. <gasps> what are we going to do now? Well, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes. Hi, Scott. 
Before we get started on the writer strike, any thoughts on the passing of Gordon Lightfoot? What a true Canadian icon. I mean, Elvis Presley, Barbara Streisand, Hank Williams Jr. I mean, everybody who is anybody, Bob Dylan, recorded his songs. Pretty incredible for a Canadian guy. You know, I think most of us just really know the songs that we sing along with and have been doing so for decades. Um, You know, I've always been a a big Gordon Lightfoot fan and uh, his songs just always sort of like hit a personal note or really set a tone or made you feel something. There's always some sort of, you know, visceral emotion whenever you listen to a Gordon Lightfoot song. And I think that, you know, with his passing, we we are we are reminded, actually, of the full breadth of work um, that he has done, his full canon of work in writing for so many of those uh, luminaries that we know so well. And people are saying, oh, yeah, he did this. And oh, yes, Gordon Lightfoot did that. You know, he was one of those uh, icons that is truly can truly be defined as our own and as Canadian. And I, I saw somebody on uh, being interviewed on this. I believe it was a, bi- a biographer who said, like, he always continually played. Even when he was ill, when he got sick, he, he'd recover, recoup, and then come back and, and just keep doing it. He never announced a farewell tour. He never said, you know, I'm not going to stop playing anymore. And as a matter of fact, it was just a few weeks ago that he canceled summer dates that were already planned for a summer and fall tour, uh, tour just due to, to his illness and such. So it's like whenever he, if he was healthy he was out there on the road he was doing it you know he was and i i think that you know we've always seen him do his all never saying no always putting himself out there and i think that one thing about gordon lightfoot is that there was never any artifice he was who he was he didn't you know play the game of trying to be somebody else he stuck to his narrative he stuck to his style of singing and songwriting and that's what really carried him from decade after decade you know you think of all the singers that you know you hear songs on the radio some of them are flashes in the pan they never hear from them again Gordon Lightfoot was not that person. He was, you know, a, a solid character of someone who de- was dedicated to his craft and writing songs that were not just meaningful to him and obviously others that employed him to do that, but also just to everyone who ever had the the privilege and the opportunity to listen to them. And, you know, at an era, during an era, you're talking about the 70s here and, and you know, Canadian content rules came into play. So it seemed all we were hearing was Gordon Lightfoot and Murray, Murray McLaughlin, that sort of thing. But a lot of those artists of that area had to go to the United States in order to make it. He didn't, you know, he was down there for a little bit and then came back and, and never left Canada and stayed and, and cultivated up here as opposed to uh, jumping down there. I know. And I think, you know, I wonder if that I think that a lot of performers still think that, you know, you have to leave in order to come back and, and, and become a success. I'm not so sure that because it's such a free flow of of information and the, and the social media has certainly changed that. But I think back in the day, that's what you did. And, you know, he did that. He did play that bit of a game and just thought, no, this isn't for me. I'm coming back. This is not who I am. I know who I am. and I'm going to do it in Canada. All right. And you're alluding to this. Let's talk about the Writers Guild uh, going on strike. Um, Different time now uh, as when Gordon Lightfoot was starting out and such. And a lot of this in regard to streaming services and such. And now with all the chatter about AI, you have to wonder how that is going to affect this industry. Do you think this makes as big a deal now as it once did when writers go on strike? 
I still think it does. I mean, listen, I've used chatbots for uh, the odd thing or two, and it's really interesting how it works. But a chatbot can't write a monologue. A chatbot can't write a, a joke or, you know, I think that, you know, you can write a general joke or perhaps in a chatbot, but often, often they sort of, you know, these bots stay away from anything that, you know, overly expresses an opinion and or a feeling. Have you ever used um, the chatbot, Scott? Because it, it is I interesting have- when you try to do that. I have had a little bit of an experiment with my son doing this and he was searching up me and just to see what would come out. And of course, everything that's ever written about somebody named Scott Thompson comes out, whether it's the kids in the hall or even the musical Hamilton, because Hamilton today was on the website. So yeah, we got a page of, of what Scott Thompson was all about, what was Scott Thompson was all about, but only a third of it was really accurate. It was the, the rest was some other Scott Thompson. Well, this is it. So if you're writing for a Jimmy Fallon or a Jimmy Kimmel or Stephen Colbert uh, or a Seth Meyers, you know, you can't a chatbot can't write in those voices and having the writers walk out. I mean, it is true. I mean, you joked about it, that those shows shut down immediately, but all of them run on writers rooms. And there's a group of writers that, you know, 10, 15, 20, whatever it is that sit around a table and then decide, you know, how, you know, how's the show going to run? What um, topics are we going to talk about? How can we skew fun at this person? How do we articulate that? So, it is a problem. And, you know, there's sort of been a detente for over a decade with writers. But, you know, now the contracts have apparently changed. And especially since streaming services came along. So, you know, you've got the Netflix, you have the Amazon Primes, and a lot of them want original shows now, right? They 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 pay for that and they pay for that content. But also, them, also think, uh, entities like Netflix are creating their own shows. So what do you need to create a show? Well, you need a producer, a director. Well, you also need writers to write the script. And since that has happened, writers' contracts have changed. I don't think they are getting as much, especially in the way of residuals that they used to get. So it has been a problem. And here is a union that's trying to basically save the lifeblood of an industry that has essentially supported all of these platforms, old and new, for all this time. And and again, who knows how this is going to uh, pan out after, you know, over a period of time with new technologies coming on stream and everybody wanting another piece of this pie. Uh, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, Writers Guild on Strike, uh, may start seeing more reruns. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You are going to see a lot of reruns, Scott, actually. And I will be well, you too. <laughs> You might have seen this in the news. Uh, This was a story coming out of the U.S. uh, from the U.S. Surgeon General that said widespread loneliness in the United States uh, poses health risks and are as deadly as smoking a dozen cigarettes a day, which if you're lonely, you might be doing. Uh, And uh, yesterday uh, declared this a public health uh, epidemic. About half the U.S. adults say they've experienced loneliness. Uh, and, and this is an ongoing situation, especially amplified with the global pandemic. Let's bring in Steve Jordan's professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, you as well, Scott. Great to chat with you about this today. So it, I'm sure you heard uh, the story from the U.S. Surgeon General out of the United States this week. Is this a post-pandemic problem or a problem that was already always already there and just amplified by the global pandemic? 
Yeah, certainly always uh, there. There's something called the Genwell Initiative that I want to point people towards. And, and they've been waving this flag since well before the pandemic, kind of talking about how we as humans have increasingly isolated ourselves. You know, even examples like putting the garages on the front of our house with a with an automatic garage door so we can now get in without having to talk to neighbors and mm. stuff like that. Um, so it's been a pattern uh, towards a more isolated existence and the pandemic just really kind of accelerated that and, and has us in a really difficult position right now. Uh, are we more divisive, therefore not as likely to get out and chat with the neighbors? I mean, is that play into this? Um, it, it may play in to some extent. The divisiveness may make it tough in some cases for us to, to connect. But just in general, it seems as though, you know, divisiveness aside, that we're just using social media more and social media doesn't give us that same level of human connection as a, a live interactive conversation does. And we're just we don't understand how important social connection is. Uh, when you look at the research, you know, we sometimes say, I wish there was a secret to happiness. There is, you know, having about four or five close social connections really insulates your your mental health, your physical health, everything. The data is overwhelming, but we just don't seem to appreciate it enough. And we keep sort of walking into a more isolated existence and then feeling horrible and not really connecting the dots. Do we think because we're active on social media that perhaps this is a substitution? Well, I'm talking to everybody. I mean, what difference does it make if I'm face to face? Yeah, very, very important. And an important thing for people to understand that when we have conversations, when we interact, the estimate is about 10% of that conversation is the actual information we're exchanging, the words. The other 90% comes through their nonverbals, the way we say things. And you can get some of that, obviously, in a radio conversation like we're having, the way you and I inflect our voices and such gives, a, gives some of those nonverbals. But you're not seeing the eyes, you're not seeing the body, you're not seeing the hands, and so much information when we talk to like, do they think we're interesting? Do they think we're funny? Um, do they are they enjoying talking to us right now? You know, all of this information comes through very primitive parts of our brain that require us to see the nonverbals. And social media, what do we have for nonverbals? We have these things called emoticons, um, which just do not do the job. They do not do the job. Um, are, how concerned are you about something like AI? I mean, we may not even, we just assume we're talking to someone at the other end, but that may not even be the case now. You know, I am very concerned because there are a number of, of simple things you can do to make social interaction work well. And humans, for some reason, are not good at them. So one of them, for example, is called active listening. You know, instead of adding to the conversation by saying what you did on the weekend or whatever, if you spend some time really kind of like a reporter would talking to that other person about their experience and what they did and why they did it and how it worked. And when we do that sort of active listening, that other person really appreciates it. Humans don't seem to be very good at doing doing this, but we could program that into an AI and you could suddenly have this assistant who really listens to what you say, asks you questions about things, you know, asks how that meeting went yesterday, today, that the kinds of things we wish a loving partner might do, we could program that and they could actually become more humane than humans. Uh, and that worries me because then I can see them being a go-to for a lot of people. 
What about those that, you know, the more friends I have, the more complicated life gets, uh, the problems, it just becomes a big pain. What are your thoughts when you hear that? There is a point where you have to manage it. So so a lot of the data, you know, I kind of threw out there having three or four really good friends um, seems, seems to be key. When you get more than that, you do reach that point where you do get benefits, you do get all the social benefits, but yeah, you have responsibilities towards friends too. And if you have too many, then you're just, you know, moving somebody every weekend and none of us want to do that. <laughs> so, so it is a question of, of finding the balance, but, but for most people, that is not the problem. The problem is getting those one or two. And a lot of it's because of another news story you mentioned, the, the mental health and the curriculum. I love that because the thing standing in the way of this happiness for most of us is something called social anxiety. We worry about just talking to somebody, just connecting with a stranger. Um, we're fearful that it'll go badly, even though it almost never does. And so to some extent, you know, if we can teach our children better what anxiety is and how to manage it, and then bring that into the social connection realm and teach them some skills of social connection, those are some of the best, according to science, that's probably the best thing you could do for your children is to have them socially fluent. Um, that will bring them happiness. It will bring them health. It will bring them opportunity. Opportunities. Uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce announcing uh, health literacy in uh, high school uh, for next year. I talked to an expert about this yesterday, Steve, and they said, I said, like, what should they be doing? Where should they, what direction, what have you? And they were just so impressed that we were talking about it and that just that alone is a big deal. I, I was really, really happy. You know, I've been pushing this every now and then, but it, you, you push these things and you hope you see them happen five, 10 years down the road. And to see it just suddenly happen uh, is just amazing. I, I do wish they would push it down a little further, and I, I assume they will. This is information that kids that are 10 years old that are being bullied, if they understood that anxiety reaction and where it comes from, how to deal with it, this could help so many kids. And, and it's just pretty simple biology when it comes down to it. It's just how our bodies react to threat. And you can understand it easily and you can learn other things you can do to kind of temper that that threat reaction that we all have. How does seclusion affect us? How do we realize that, that it's it's taking over? Yeah. I mean, what I heard the Surgeon General say something uh, from the States today that I thought was good. And he was saying, first of all, when they're talking about loneliness, we all experience loneliness at times. And, and if it's experienced in the way that hunger or thirst uh, is, that's how it was meant to be experienced as a sort of signal that says, hey, I need something right now. I, I need another human being to talk to. What we're really talking about with the loneliness pandemic here, uh, or epidemic, I guess I should say, is prolonged loneliness, where you're just in that state for a very, very long time. And when you are in that state, you become very sensitive to all the other stressors. Our social connections insulate us from other stress. Uh, And so if you don't have those social connections, you're much more likely to feel burnt out. And and just the stress is much more likely to take you to a bad place, which leads literally to your immune system not working well, being susceptible to disease and viruses and things like that. So, you know, it's very, that, that's where that pack of cigarettes analogy comes in that when people are isolated for too long, their health literally is impacted. Their mental state impacts their physical state in bad ways. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, U.S. Surgeon General reporting widespread loneliness is just as bad a health risk as smoking a dozen cigarettes daily, especially in a post-pandemic world. Steve, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
Thank you, Scott. You as well. The only Gordon Lightfoot story I have is uh, I was producing the Jesse and Gene show at Q107 many years ago. We went to the Actra Awards, and uh, they were winning an award, and it was Gordon Lightfoot that presented them the award. And there was a shot that made it into the paper where Gordon Lightfoot's laughing his head off. And I think what uh, Jesse had said to him was, we love the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald because it's six and a half minutes long, and it gives you lots of time to go to the bathroom. All right, there you go. Uh, many of you aware that uh, originally uh, that Gordon Lightfoot was from Aurelia. Well, let's get a hometown angle on all of this. Rap, uh, Ralph Sapola is with us, counselor for Ward 2, city of Aurelia, and uh, knew Gordon Lightfoot then and now and is with us now. Ralph, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you so much for having me. So what's life like in Aurelia now? This might this must hold a, a, a very personal memory for everyone there. What's it like there today? Oh, there's a lot of sadness within the community. Our community is deeply saddened to learn about the passing of Gord uh, Lightfoot. Uh, uh, Gord was highly regarded in Aurelia, as has uh, had an immense impact. He has had an immense impact on our community. Um, he put Aurelia on the map. Um his hmm. deep roots in our city are woven in the fabric of Aurelia with tributes from uh, 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 the Gord Lightfoot Auditorium stage, uh, his bust uh, uh, right in front of our opera house. Uh, um, and in our uh, provincial park at Taro Park there, there's sculptures uh, of him. And then there's uh, floor leaves that have every song that he produced and sang uh, uh, around here. So uh, Lightfoot was an incredible artist. I knew him personally. Um, I was eight years old, and he lived on John Street, and I lived on Otosaga. And then there's a park in between us, uh, uh, mm. Thompson, and uh, we would go there to park. And uh, I was young, and there was older kids there that would bully us, and Gord would come around and uh, save us. Um, <laughs> and, uh, that was uh, that was Gord. He was such a wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, like I said, he put Aurelia on the map, but he was more than that. To Aurelians, he was he was sort of like a father to us because he uh, he promoted our city wherever he went, uh, and that and uh, he contributed a lot. He donated both to the Aurelia Opera House to make it better, Soldiers Memorial Hospital, and uh, we have a bust of him just outside of our um, uh, opera house, and. Uh, a lot of us knew him and remember him. And at the Mariposa Folk Festival, as I was telling the young lady that uh, that I talked to there, um, first my I had my first grandson and my uh, son-in-law. We went to Mariposa because I helped out there quite a bit. Gord saw us and he came over and says, "Wow, what a beautiful, what a beautiful kid!" And he held mm. him and we took a picture and. Uh, we all had tears in our eyes because, and then my my son-in-law says, "You know him?" I, I say, "Yeah, we go back a long ways." But he was such an incredible person, and Aurelia will never, never, ever forget him. May he rest in peace. You talked about growing up uh, with him in Aurelia. What is your early earliest memory of him singing or performing? Uh, it was. Uh, Basically, at the Mariposa Folk Festival when he first got mm-hmm. here, uh, and that, and and to be honest with you, yes, we had Ian Tyson and all those uh, people, but um, Mr. Lightfoot put or Gord put uh, 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 put a different spin on the Mariposa Folk Festival. Uh, 
whenever he appeared here, there'd be back, lines backed up on Highway 400 uh, for people to come to the concert and that, and they'd be delayed quite a bit. But that was uh, that was quite an attraction. And when he played here, we used to have it up at the Oval, and we had five, 6,000 people there. And the downtown, every single restaurant was sold out by 9 o'clock after that. So, mm. And we attribute that to Mr. To Gord, uh, uh, because... Uh, he had, he drew people because he had the uh, the best music in those those days. And anything planned uh, by the town at this point for going forward, a memorial or anything of that nature? Yes, uh, we have lowered our flags at half mast uh, throughout the, our community, and uh, we will be planning some tributes to him. Um, don't know what they are, and he Mariposa Folk Festival, uh, the city we're working with them to have a tribute to to. Uh, Lightfoot on uh, the Mariposa Folk Festival, which is in July uh, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th, or in that area there. So we will have um, that uh, tributes to him and his life and uh, his contributions to our city. Ralph Sapola with us, Councillor for Ward 2, City of Aurelia, and remembers uh, Gordon Lightfoot strolling around town as a young person and obviously uh, the people in Aurelia uh, loving Gordon Lightfoot and missing him today. Ralph, thanks so much for sharing stories with us. Much appreciated. Be well. Yes, he will play the Edmund Fitzgerald from heaven. Uh, so everybody listen, and uh, thank you for calling, and all the best to CHML in Hamilton. Uh, stay safe. and. Uh, all the blessings. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know the issues around uh, passports and such. And really, at the end of the day, the moral of the story is, and I'm sure Barry would echo this, if you have any plan to travel within the next year at all, Go get your passport or start the process of. Don't wait till it's a month or two in advance and don't wait. Oh, gee, you know what? Maybe I want to go away here, there or whatever. And, you know, uh, wait till the last minute to get all this stuff done. If you think you're going to be traveling in uh, in the future, just get her done. And then that way, hopefully you don't have to put up with this. But now, uh, obviously, with uh, the resolution with the federal public service strike, Everybody's heading back to work. However, they're, uh, during the strike, there is a bit of a backlog. I don't know how can, there could be that much after, I think it was like eight business days, 10 days total. Uh, but obviously, this is creating a bit of a bottleneck once again. To talk more about all of this, travel expert Barry Choi, he's with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me back. So this is interesting because I think the uh, passport people put out the note ahead of time, like expect delays because we're all catching up. That being said, as I mentioned, Barry, it's like eight days. Is there going to be that much of a backlog? Oops, sorry, drop some stuff. Uh, there shouldn't be that much of a, a delay. Like you said, it was only two weeks. Um, I don't know how much of a delay there could possibly be. That said, you know, I think we've both uh, learned or heard that a lot of people like to wait till the last minute to get things done. So all those people who had to travel in the last two weeks um, and were looking for their passports are probably trying to make up for it now. But again, it's like, it can't be that many people. I feel like they've just put us on notice. So then when you arrive and the lines aren't so bad, you feel like, oh, they're doing good. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting way to look at it, Barry, considering what we've been through. Uh, that being said, are you confident uh, that this is just about the strike and not some layover from past problems we're still experiencing, getting the bugs out? 
you know, we didn't even hear about passport delays until the strike. And the funny thing about it is the people who were complaining or the people who were like, well, I don't want to blame them, but they really should have got their passports done in advance. Uh, you Obviously, there are sometimes emergencies come up. You can't plan for them. You got to get a passport right away. But, you know, if you're planning a trip to Mexico or wherever and you know you're it's coming up, why are you waiting? Uh, you know, in my opinion, you should always have a passport regardless. They, they last you 10 years. It's like 130 bucks or something to get it renewed or, or to get a passport for 10 years. Uh, so there's no reason not to have one when you think about it. And many people think that uh, because you really only need it when you're flying, that you don't necessarily need it when you're crossing by land. That being said, it certainly is a lot easier to have it for even those you know jaunts to Buffalo or what have you. I find in general these days just re, re, uh, relying on your you know driver's license uh, is is not really the best thing. Sure, you know like you know ten twenty years ago. It wasn't a big deal to cross the border with just a driver's license. But these days, you know, crossing with your passport just makes things a lot smoother. Uh, you know, traveling within Canada, technically speaking, you don't need your passport uh, if you're flying. But again, it's one of those things where it's a document that's just more widely recognized. You have less issues with it. So just having one handy, having one in your possession is essential, regardless if you're planning to travel in the near future or not. Is there an easier or a faster way to do this, to get it if you need it? Uh, you know, it kind of depends on your definition of, of faster, right? So there is express service where you can get the service done pretty quickly. But though that is typically reserved for people to have upcoming travel. And, and the hope is people will want to avoid that. But I will say this, you know, like a lot of things related to Service Ontario, you can actually book your appointment these days uh, well in advance. You know, that can be a week from now, a month from now, whenever. And if you've got that appointment booked, it's pretty easy to get your passport as long as you have all your documents in order. So to me, it's one of those things where it's kind of on the consumer. Uh, that said, you, you, you know, I certainly can feel for it. You know, just back in December, I didn't even realize my driver's license expired. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it happens, right? Um, but like I said, once I quickly realized that, oh, wow, you know what? I, I don't need to drive for a few days, fortunately, at that time. I booked appointment a few days later, and I literally just walked in and had everything done within an hour. So it was actually very simple. Obviously, with passports, you do need to factor in the wait time to get your passport back. Uh, and a lot of the driver's license stuff now you can do online, which is great. Uh, and well, I understand that with the passports and the delay and backlog, what have you, they're still processed by departure date. So if your trip is earlier, the chances are they'll get to you before one that's later. That's exactly it. They are playing a catch-up right now. So, so yeah, you, you, having a closer departure date works in your favor. But again, I want to emphasize that we you don't want to wait until the last minute. Thinking like, oh, I'll just wait longer because my passport will get processed quicker is not a good strategy, right? Uh, you you want to always start the process as soon as you can. So, you know, anyone listening, here's what I, I'm telling you to do. Go check your passport right now. Take a look at the expiration date. And it's within the next year, just start the process now. Go online, go to Service Ontario, book an appointment, just get the process going. We all remember the issues post-pandemic with travel, airports, security, passports, what have you. Uh, three years out now, how are we at the airports? Are most of those issues resolved? Generally speaking, I would say most of them resolved, or rather there are solutions that can help you resolve things. So one big concern for a lot of people was um, passport controls, right? Or, or rather security. Uh, that was a big concern. Uh, security was a, for a few different reasons. You know, number one, there wasn't enough staff. Number two, a lot of people were returning to travel 
And as weird as it sounds, they actually forgot about the process. They forgot like, you know, liquids need to go in a bag. You got to have your laptops out. Um, but what's nice now is like, let's say you're traveling within Canada domestically. Uh, there's the YYZ Express app, which allows you to book a time with at security. Uh, so you can skip the lines at Terminal 1 and Terminal 3 at Pearson International Airport. Hamilton obviously has their own international airport. It's a lot smaller. So generally speaking, the lines are much shorter there. And you're flying through to the U.S. from Pearson. Uh, there's an app called the Mobile Passport Control app, which allows you to pre-declare your customs. It literally takes two or three minutes and it lets you skip uh, the U.S. customs line. So, so there's quite a few tools out there. You just got to take advantage of them. Barry Choi with us, travel export, uh, expert rather, and uh, hoping to export soon. And obviously the issue around passports, get them early. Very simple. Barry, thanks for the time. Happy traveling. No problem. Anytime. Have a good one. Obviously, you've uh, or maybe not heard the news. Uh, heard the news today that uh, Gordon Lightfoot passing away at the age of eighty-four. Uh, tributes coming in from all across the country, and when you think, or all across the world, really, and when you think of his songwriting prowess and the people who recorded his music, whether it's Elvis Presley, Barbara Streisand, Hank Williams Jr., um, it, it's quite a selection of stars over time. Bob Dylan, and uh, it's amazing how this Canadian has made his mark on the international music scene let's bring in alan cross host of the ongoing history of new music and with us now alan thanks for the time i'm sure you're a busy guy what are your thoughts as you hear this news um you know i i it's it's no way how do i describe this it's you knew it was coming uh when we heard about the fact that he canceled all those shows that he had planned for this year uh last month uh, you, the, the country, I think, kind of had a, a collective uh-oh because we knew something was was coming. I mean, after all, he was 84, and the last 20 years, really, of his life w- was a gift because back in 2003, he suffered what was a, 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 um, a ruptured aortic aneurysm or a ruptured, yeah, um, which, which nearly killed him. Um, he was in the hospital for months and months and months. And it took two full years for him to recover. And I don't think he was ever really the same. I mean, something like that takes an awful lot of out of, out of you. Although, uh, and then there was a stroke that he had in 2006, which affected the, uh, um, happened in the middle of a show, and leaving him unable to use the middle and ring fingers of his right hand for a while. He needed to use a, a guitarist, another guitarist, to sub in for his parts. Um, but, you know, he kept playing and performing and performing and performing because... As, uh, as he once told me, this is what he did. He was a performer. He was a singer-songwriter. He had to be in front of the crowds because that's what he was put on this earth to do. And he had an obligation to fulfill that, to, to follow that. It's amazing how, and we talked about this before, in an era when most Canadian singer-songwriters, acts, whatever, had to go to the United States to make a living. This guy was Canada before Canada was cool. Yeah. Now, that's a really interesting point, because Gordon Lightfoot emerges in the middle 1960s, around the same time as Canada was celebrating its 100th birthday with the centennial in 1967. So in a way, Gordon Lightfoot, who is singing about, you know, Canadian things, grew up with Canada as this country, which had its own flag now and wasn't under the thumb of Britain as much as it had been. And, and the, the two kind of grew together in that 
period of optimism in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Gordon Life, it was, you know, a fixture in, in Yorkville, uh, that two square block area of downtown Toronto, which was a breeding ground to so much music. Neil Young, Buffy St. Marie, Joni Mitchell, Rick James, John Kay, you know, on and on and on. And then we get into the early 1970s and the man starts having international hits and at least one number one hit in the United States. So if you were alive in the 1970s, Gordon Light was was ubiquitous. He was at his commercial peak with, uh, you know, songs coming out and singles coming out all the time. Um, he was Canada. He was the sound of Canada for a very, very long time. Do you think we appreciated him as much then as we do now? That's interesting because I'm not entirely sure. See, that was a different time for Canadian music, especially Canadian music on the radio, because it was the beginning of the Canadian content rules. So radio stations after 1971 had to play a certain number of songs every day. And it was like eating your vitamins or eating broccoli. You had to do it, right? So um, Gordon Lightfoot was, at, in some ways, you know, lumped in with all that. But he was also beyond that because of his international reach. And fascinating that uh, I remember, as you said, hanging out with Dylan in New York, blah, 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 uh, watching a Dylan biopic on Netflix and old footage, whatever. And there is Gordon Lightfoot sitting in his apartment, hanging out with all of those musicians of the day. Okay, let, let's I'm going to back up here. We're going to talk about all the musicians that respected Bob Dylan, that respected uh, Gordon Lightfoot. I'm going to give you a list. Uh, of all the people, or just some of the people, who have recorded Bob Dylan covers. You ready? Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Barbara Streisand, Neil Young, Glenn Campbell, The Grateful Dead, Olivia Newton-John, Jimmy Buffett, Sarah McLaughlin, John Mellencamp, Johnny Mathis, Paul Weller, The Tragically Hip, Jim Croce, and about a dozen other big names. The biggest, though, was Bob Dylan. Now, you can make the argument that Bob Dylan was the greatest singer-songwriter of the 20th century. And I'm going to quote Dylan about Lightfoot. He said, I can't think of any Gordon Lightfoot song I don't like. Every time I hear a song of his, it's like I wish it would last forever. And then there's this line. Lightfoot became a mentor for a long time. Now, let that sink in. Bob Dylan, greatest singer-songwriter of all time, considered Lightfoot his mentor, someone he could learn from. What does that tell you? Yeah, you get chills just hearing you say that. Um, he, but yet, I hear an incredibly modest guy and couldn't understand what all the fuss was about. Accurate. You got that feeling. But at the same time, he was, he was a real perfectionist. I, once uh, I spoke to an engineer who was recording a Gordon Lightfoot concert. And uh, Gordon insisted on going through the sound check. And then he insisted in going into the control room or the truck and listening to the sound check to make sure that everything sounded just right. They recorded the show, and then when it was all over and done, he took the hard drive home because he didn't want anybody else to have it. He just mm. such a perfectionist. Uh, the last time I saw him was in December of 2020. He was uh, still he was frail, 81 years old, uh, but his voice was still pretty good, and he had a really, really uh, good band behind him. They they seemed relaxed, but when mm. you see a band that relaxed. Uh, they, they also have to be very, very tight, and they were. 
How do you explain uh, in the mid-1970s having even a, a song like The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and you know putting out like a five- or six-minute single and then an album version, which wasn't much longer than the single? How does that fly well, at that era? I, I can tell you that uh, if you're a radio person, uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald saved you many times when you needed a bathroom break. Um, we had that conversation earlier. Absolutely. Yeah, it's honest to God it, that 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 it's it's sort of a, a it, it was a joke, but it wasn't a joke because if you needed seven yep. minutes <laughs> and you needed some Canadian content for your radio program, well, there you go. You went to Gordon Lightfoot and the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Um, yeah, you know we could be. Yes, exactly. Now you you we could be flippant about it and say that Gordon Lightfoot was famous for writing songs about trains and shipwrecks. But uh, there was much more to him than that. He was, you know, he peppered his songs with a lot of Canadianisms, much like it would, we would see a generation later with, with Gord Downey. In fact, if they, without that first Gord, I don't think there would have been a second Gord. Um, and then there was just something about his, his voice. I, I, I'm really hard-pressed to come up with another performer whose voice had that timbre. Uh, I, I just can't. And, you know, he, he somehow was able to, you know, sing seriously. He was able to sing, you know, with, with, you know, dripping with heartache. Um, and, and some of the lyrical, um, you know, the, the lyrical adventures in some of his songs were, were, were very, very good. And I'm also going to say that, you know, I don't think that there was probably a generation where, Every time somebody was around the campfire with an acoustic guitar, a Gordon Lightfoot song was played. Very valid point. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music, remembering uh, Gordon Lightfoot, true Canadian icon. Always a great conversation, Alan. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Here's a headline that is certainly going to grab your attention. How Canada can create more rental housing. It's an opinion piece in the Globe and Mail, uh, penned by Mike Moffat, Assistant Professor of Business, Economics and Public Policy, Ivy School of Business at Western University. And obviously, uh, this has been a growing situation, a growing problem for decades now, uh, so much so that the last all the four main political parties in the last provincial election, whether it was Greens, NDP, Liberals, or Conservatives, all said we got to build a million homes. Uh, obviously, with a shortage of homes, it is going to affect the rental market as well. How do we increase that stock? Yeah, we remember the days back in the 70s when rental apartments were around, then now replaced by condos. Let's bring in Mike, uh, Mike Moffat now from Western. Mike, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. No, oh, thank you for having me. How did this backlog start? What? How did we get here? Well, basically, in, in Ontario, over the last ten to fifteen years, our population growth has escalated, and our uh, housing starts haven't. So. Uh, we've seen uh, immigration targets go up and we've seen uh, more uh, newcomers to Canada choose Ontario than other provinces, which is a good thing. Uh, we've seen international student enrollments absolutely skyrocket at colleges and universities. And, you know, it's, it's a great thing that we have so many of the world's best and brightest who, who want to come 
to Ontario to uh, to to learn and get a job and start a family. But we just haven't uh, kept up on the policy side to, to get enough housing. And where it's mostly acute uh, felt acutely right now is on the rental stock side that across Ontario, uh, we're seeing double digit price increases on new leases uh, for for apartments. So we need to do something and, and we need to do it fast. Obviously, we know the issue with, uh, with housing. How has this translated into rentals? We remember back in the 70s, they were building them all the time. Now it seems that they're not. Are we creating enough incentive to build rental units? Yeah, so the short, short answer is no. And a lot of that has to actually do with federal policies that back in the 1960s uh, into the 1970s, there were all kinds of incentive, incentive programs designed to get the private sector to build more apartments. So all those sort of concrete towers that uh, apartment buildings uh, that every city in Ontario has was built in part with these incentives. So it was favorable tax treatments uh, for for builders. They were able to uh, write off expenses faster and, and that sort of thing. Um, and in fact, those programs were actually working too well. So back in around 1972 or so, uh, the federal government started to wind down those programs because we had sort of too many ap- apartments So what my co-author Ken Bosenkul and I uh, state in our piece in The Globe is that we should start to look at bringing those back or at least trying to think through what 2023's version of those tax incentives would be. That right now the federal government is is spending some time and energy on social housing and and co-ops and that kind of thing, which are sorely needed. But uh, we need the private sector to be able to do more. Uh, Largely, they're not just because it's not cost effective, but we can make it cost effective by tweaking the tax system. And it's interesting too, Mike, you touched on something. um, When we talk or we have this discussion, a lot of the times politicians simply talk about low income housing, which of course is a major problem, but there's housing shortages across every, every category. Is there not? Yeah, there, there absolutely is. And, and housing is a system, right? So what happens, say, like a lack of student housing? Uh, well, what happens if you lack student housing is that a lot of uh, single family homes get turned into student rentals, and then all of a sudden you have a, a lack of family housing. So all of the pieces fit together. And when it comes to the federal government, again, they're spending a lot of time on the kind of social housing piece. But that's only about 6% of of Canada's housing stock. So we argue that uh, the government needs to focus more on that sort of 94%. So it's not just how do we create social housing, but how do we make housing more attainable and affordable across the spectrum? So everything from uh, one-bedroom apartments to uh, single detached homes that uh, you can can raise kids in. Right now, we've got a shortage of everything in southern Ontario, and it's, it's going to take a massive effort to... Uh, to to do sort of the undo the damage over the last few decades. Only got about thirty seconds left. The role of condos in all of this. How does it play a part? Well, it, it's it's important, uh, but we certainly need more condos as well. So I don't think the conversation should be condos versus rental apartments, but absolutely we need to have m- more of both. All right, Mike Moffitt with us, Assistant Professor of Business, Economics, and Public Policy, Ivy School of Business at Western University, trying to solve the rental situation, which, of course, subcategory of a housing shortage. Mike, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
the headline in the Globe and Mail uh, says it quite clearly. If you're not watching what's going on in the House of Commons, where the prime minister is just getting hammered in the last couple of days over the harassment of an MP uh, by the uh, allegedly by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, the article says the evidence of China's interference in Canada's democracy was already alarming, now doubly so, with fresh revelations that Beijing not only meddled with successive federal elections, but also attempted to intimidate a sitting MP. Uh, obviously, the Globe has previously reported on uh, operatives from Beijing trying to swing uh, elections in 2019 and 2021. Fortunately, not enough to actually change the outcome, but whether it's illegal donations, tax fraud, or whatever, that's troubling enough. But now the Globe reporting on Monday, based on a leak of yet another top-secret CSIS report, that in 2021, Chinese intelligence operatives targeted the family of conservative MP Michael Chong in order to intimidate him. Has it uh, moved to a different level now that MPs are actually getting harassed? Let's bring in Gordon Holden, University of Alberta, uh, Alberta and the China Institute. And with us now, Gordon, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott. So uh, once an MP and the family starts to get harassed, is this where we draw the line? Because this has been going on forever, it seems. When you say that today's Global Mail story, I almost feel like the daily Global Mail story on interference. I mean, it's uh, it's a drumbeat uh, that doesn't seem to have an end. I don't know how much more material is to come. This one is particularly worrisome in that it's um, intimidation of a family of an MP, but it's not even just any MP. This is the foreign affairs critic, the presumptive uh, foreign minister of Canada should the conservative be elected. It's a very senior person in our political establishment. So it's it's deeply troubling. Um, perhaps not entirely surprising. I think it runs true to form, uh, but uh, added with all the other things that have, that have come to light in the last several months, you could say years, but let's say months, um, it um, is something one cannot or cannot or should not ignore, to be sure. What has the government done as a result of this? Because, again, this information is two years old. I mean, it's it sounds like the diplomat has not been expelled yet. They keep talking about that. There's no guidelines or rules about uh, how you do this or how you you follow this sort of thing. That's uh, still not been done. So what has been done regarding this from the government? How have they reacted? Well, the, the reactions, for, as I can see, has been simply the prime minister's promise to look into it, to ask for a report on who knew and who didn't know, etc. cetera. Uh, but that's, that's investigation, not action. Uh, if, if it is indeed, and I'm assuming these facts are accurate, I have to make that assumption because I certainly don't have access to the material. Um, but let's assume it's accurate. Uh, and the person is still here who was the handler, I suppose you could say, um, of this particular issue, presumably within the Toronto Consul General, um, expulsion is an option. Um, I can guarantee you, however, at least I think it's highly likely that would be followed by a tit-for-tat action against one of our diplomats in China. But uh, that needn't be a, uh, it's a consideration, but it needn't be something that prevents um, action. A diplomat, in this case, a consular agent is a technical term. Uh, not a, uh, He, in this case, would uh, not be liable to arrest or detention or charging, uh, but could be expelled. 
Uh, we've seen uh, the reaction of the government for all of these things, and it's it sort of to push it off. They're really not admitting it. When the first issues came out regarding all of these leaks, the, temp- uh, the prime minister used the, the term racism when addressing the reporter. Now it just keeps brewing and brewing and brewing, and we have the liberals now admitting in the House of Commons that this is bad, that this is that this should not happen. It's sort of been the first time they've admitted something like that. Does that mean action? Well, one presume that it should or would. Um, I don't exclude the, the issue of racism. Always has to be a factor to considered, but it cannot be an excuse for inaction. Um, I, officials who are Canadians who are concerned about national security uh, are not racist. We do know that in some cases, if the drum is beaten loud enough, that the Ignorant people can take action against people who just happen to look Asian. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is a a specific case, specific question. I'm not about to say what the government must do, but something has to be done. And, And of course, the public inquiry would be one means to do so. But if the person responsible is still in Canada, that is something that could be done. And uh, that needn't wait for the conclusion of a public inquiry necessarily, which would take months and months. And that inquiry hasn't even been uh, launched. It's in the, whether we need one is under the study uh, by the government. Has Canada or anybody in government talked to China about this, summoned the ambassador, anything we can do to to talk about this other than what we're hearing in the media? Well, I think today may be too fast, i.e., um, when this came out, folks in Beijing would still be asleep, so our ambassador would be at limited uh, utility there. Uh, here in in Canada, presuming that story broke early this morning, um, if uh, the ambassador hasn't already been been summoned, I think that should be imminent. I mean, it may well be. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time to organize it. It's something that, if it didn't happen today, it could happen tomorrow. Uh, but I think to in the face of this, to sit on one's hands, risk sending the signal that it's okay. And uh, what precisely should be the reaction, that's a tougher question. But some reaction or action would appear to me to be essential. Gordon Holden with us, University of Alberta, China Institute. Uh, more evidence from the Globe and Mail through ceases of uh, interference with an MP uh, in the last election. Gordon, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott, for having me on. Take care. Obviously, the federal, or most of them, the majority of federal public service workers back to uh, work on Monday after a uh, tentative deal was signed by them, uh, looking for 3, uh, 3%, uh, sorry, no, the line in the sand was 3% over three years, uh, 3% a year, adding up to 9%. It seemed before the weekend, there wasn't going to be much of a budge on that. And then over the weekend, extended to a four-year deal, and uh, everybody's in. And as we digest this, the only thing that's left is... Is uh, Canada Revenue Agency, which are still out. However, does that affect more of us since obviously it is tax time right now? Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University, and is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. And thanks. Hope you're well too. So, Peter, uh, this didn't go too long, a couple of weeks. Uh, how do you think the public digested all of this? Did everybody come out happy? Everybody out scar free? What are your thoughts after uh, digesting this? Well, I guess it kind of shows that the federal government actually doesn't step that closely in most of our lives. I think, you know, unless you were looking to get your passport processed in the past couple of weeks, you probably weren't really affected by the strike in any kind of major way. 
um, you know, the federal government does a lot of things, but uh, a lot of them don't touch us in the kind of immediate day-to-day way that, say, uh, public education workers do or uh, workers in our hospitals. How do you think Canadians are, 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 do you think they're digesting this or another problem done and we move on? And as you said, it doesn't really affect me either way. Do you think they thought it was too much, not enough or mm, tuning out? Well, I mean, you'll always find people who think, uh, you know, government employees are paid too much and probably some who think they're paid too little. But I suspect most people will look at the, the settlement and they'll look at the inflation rate and say, you know, it looks pretty much like the salaries haven't changed in terms of what they allow you to buy, uh, you know, from before to now. So, uh, you know, I, I suspect it's not going to be seen as a situation where the federal government, you know, broke the bank uh, to curry favor with public sector workers uh, or one where the public sector workers are really, you know, getting beaten with a stick and losing their, their ability to, to maintain their purchasing power. Uh, Canada Revenue Agency still out. We understand that's a different bargaining situation. They're coming from a different place and want a little bit more money. Um, your thoughts on that? Is this one perhaps going to occupy more of our time because it does affect us all at tax time? Uh, well, I mean, I presume uh, probably has had some impact if people were trying to, you know, reach Revenue Canada while preparing their taxes. But again, I'm not sure that's that many of us. Um, you know, if they're a bit slower to get to the audits, I'm sure most people won't be crying either. So, uh, again, I'm not sure that it's really going to have, you know, obviously for people who uh, did need to uh, speak to an agent in the past, uh, you know, week as they're finishing their taxes, it is a, it is an annoyance. But again, I don't think it's that many uh, Canadians, uh, you know, the extent that people have questions about their taxes, it's uh, Usually that they're they're asking it, you know, to the uh, software company that they're using to prepare them or, you know, the company that's preparing it for them. Um, again, I, I don't think this is going to have a huge impact in terms of how, how people experience tax time this year. If uh, that's prepa- uh, preparing taxes, getting them ready before the deadline afterwards, if you're receiving a refund, will this have ramifications if it starts delaying checks? Do you think that will affect it by much, even at two weeks? Uh, I mean, I think so much of this is computerized now that uh, it's not going to have a huge impact. Obviously, for people who are still sending in a paper return, it will have a bit more of an impact. Uh, But again, uh, I don't think it's going to be that significant. I mean, obviously, if they're out for another month and a half, which I think is unlikely, you know, you might begin to have a a bigger impact again on, on people who prepared paper returns. Uh, was this politically good or bad for the federal government? Uh, obviously, a lot of people in Ottawa working for uh, the federal government and in writings there, uh, uh, obviously held by uh, the majority of liberal uh, candidates and such. Do you think this will affect uh, an election in any way? I don't think that greatly. I mean, it did allow uh, Jagmeet Singh the ability to kind of te- push himself against, you know, or, uh, to, to run a bit against the uh, the Liberals, which is always useful for him. Probably is also never a great day for any government to, you know, be in a situation where people are talking about collective bargaining and, uh, you know, raises for public employees, uh, because it probably, you know, just instinctively makes people think about government is spending too much. And that's probably a uh, a narrative that won't be useful for uh, Justin Trudeau in the next election. So, no, I think there's probably some small impacts that it's had, but uh, I don't think it's going to have a, a very big impact 
on how the vote goes. Uh, you know, in the Ottawa area, it is very much, a, with the exception of about one riding, uh, a conservative uh, liberal competition. And I think uh, public servants who uh, didn't like the way the federal government bargained would be even less happy with a fully ever conservative government. And so in that context, uh, their votes are unlikely to change. What about Jugmeet Singh with the NDP? Obviously, an agreement with the Liberals to keep this government in power. Uh, Jugmeet Singh walking a fine line, trying to look like he's critical, and yet also accused of propping up the government. Uh, is this is this working for the NDP? Are they coming across like, wow, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have this? Uh, or is it, yeah, if we really wanted to change anything, this guy could pull the trigger and really, inf- and really enforce change. So how, how is, how is that relationship working for the leader? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of sustaining uh, the NDP's uh, base, uh, it's, it's working fine for him. I think among NDP supporters, uh, this agreement is very popular and uh, people can point to things like dental care as something that comes out of it. I think in Mr. Singh's ability to go and find new voters, it's maybe a bit harder. So for people who aren't, you know, predisposed to uh, like the NDP, I think it's easy to see them as in, you know, some kind of much more thorough coalition with the Liberals or ensuring the the survival of that government. And I think it then makes it harder for him then to grow beyond his base and convince new people uh, to support the NDP. What about when it comes to fundraising, Peter? Because we remember at the beginning, well, they don't want to bring the government down. They don't want to go into an election. The coffers aren't full. Yet we're hearing on the other side that uh, things are going quite well uh, for the conservatives and, and they're raising all kinds of money. What about fundraising for our, both the liberals and the NDP? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Poilievre, I think, does very well in, in terms of uh, really stirring outrage and, and using that to drive donations. I think, you know, for Mr. Singh, it has to be a different strategy, and it's more of pointing to this idea of accomplishments, um, you know, that would only be possible uh, because the NDP holds a balance of power. And so I think probably he is in a, a strong position because he can make the case to his base that he's actually making a difference in, in getting things done like a dental care program. Uh, you know, certainly when uh, when Leighton was able to get some money into housing in the 2005 budget, it was very good for fundraising for the NDP. I think for the Liberals, it's kind of a it's a hard situation because it's a tired government. Uh, I think Liberal supporters are getting tired of trying to come up with excuses for things that have Trudeau has done, and so it's probably harder to get uh, Liberals to open their wallets and to be enthusiastic uh, about uh, helping you know support the survival and re-election of a government which now you know was elected as fresh energy, but that was seven eight years ago, uh, much less fresh now much harder to sustain the enthusiasm of the party base. Uh, considering where we are and, and how things just kind of keep slipping here for the prime minister, he, I know he's committed to running in another uh, election, but uh, are we going to see that? And we're really close on time, Peter. Uh, your thoughts? I think he wants to stay as long as possible. So we'll have to look really bad for him to decide to, to pull the trigger and let someone else come in to replace him. Peter Grant with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, and talking about uh, life after a federal service strike and uh, the ramifications of. Seems to be smooth sailing. Peter, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator as well. Scott Radley, he is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am well. How are you? So far, so good. You want to tell me a Gordon Lightfoot story? Do you want to get right to the Leafs? <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I saw Gordon Lightfoot uh, twice in concert. 
once really? was. Well, once was early on when my wife and I were married. I don't know if you remember this. Um, what was the group that Ballard's Kid used to own? The concert, it was it CPI Concert Productions International, yes, I think? Yep. Mm-hmm. And they had their anniversary and brought Simon and Garfunkel out of retirement at Skydome wow. back then. Hmm. Just, it was about two or three months after Joe Carter hit the World Series winning home run. And we got great seats and it was Simon and Garfunkel and Blue Rodeo and Gordon Lightfoot. Wow. That's a pretty good bill. It was a great bill. And we did not, the two of us, honestly, even though we're Canadian, didn't know much Gordon Lightfoot then. I mean, we, you know, as kids, you'd heard Sundown on the radio, every second song or whatever, but loved him, loved him. And then saw him in Hamilton on the 25th anniversary, I believe, of the Edmund Fitzgerald. He was here on that, uh, that night and did a concert at Hamilton Place. So yeah, no, he was, he was, um, I read someone today wrote on Twitter and I wish I knew who it was because I thought this was the single best line that anyone wrote about Gordon Lightfoot. They said, he sounded like the group of seven looked. It's wow. Just, that's an interesting analogy. You see, well, you yeah. see, you see the group of seven and they are all yeah. about Canada. Gordon Lightfoot sounded like yeah. a group of seven painting. Very, and you know what? Uh, as I said to Alan Cross, he was Canada when Canada wasn't cool, and uh, and now it seems if you if you listen to the tragically hip, any Canadian artist, Blue Rodeo, another great example. There's so much Canadiana in those bands now that at one time when Gordon Lightfoot was coming out, you didn't hear a lot of that, and a lot of the Canadian artists had to go to the U.S. to have success, well, not and, him. And who were the Canadian artists that were actually making it back then? They were all the folk artists. You had you had Joni yeah. Mitchell and you had Neil Young and Murray. Then. And Murray and him and Leonard Cohen to some degree, although he was, anyway, yeah, it was all coming out of that Yorkville folk era. And he was one of the people who weirdly, because I I always think of Gordon Lightfoot more as country. I don't know why than I do a folk, Hmm. but I guess he's more folk than country. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, also the artists that played with him, and I was saying this to Alan Cross that I remember watching a Netflix biography, you know, a, a biopic on Bob Dylan mm. and there's old footage of him in some New York apartment. And it's like a who's who of music of the day, whether it's members of the doors or Zeppelin or whatever. And there's Gordon Lightfoot sitting, you know, yakking with Bob Dylan, who obviously a big fan, but like Elvis, Barbara Streisand, Johnny Cash, Hank Williams, Jr. I mean, the, the array of people that recorded his, his stuff, it's unbelievable. Well, I, I heard yesterday and I, I had not known this, but, um, it was either in the rock and roll hall of fame or the songwriter or something that the person who inducted Gordon Lightfoot was Bob Dylan. Yeah. That was Juno's, Juno's. several years back. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't yeah, realize yeah. that. And, yeah, but there yeah. you go. There's, I mean, usually the person who inducts someone obviously is inspired, motivated, feels strongly about them. So there you go. All right. So, uh, we got to talk about the Leafs, your thought. I, I heard this the other day and you know, it's funny even listening to Dave Woodard on the news, he's saying things, he goes, I can't believe I just said that, uh, you know, Leafs going to round two, what have you. And it was interesting. I heard somebody last night say the Leafs are now the favorite because everyone else is out. What are your thoughts? I will. And, and, you know, you and I always have this, I, I will tell you my thoughts after tonight's game and I'll tell you why uh, for the series. I'm not just talking, I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to say, I'll tell you how they're going to do tonight after the game, um, for the series, because one of the things that goes through my mind is that the Leafs are a team that had such an emotional hurdle to get over after all these years, you just wonder if they go, And then they see that they don't have to play Boston because, you know, the best team in regular season history just got knocked out. And if they just do what the Leafs have done a few times or many times and just come out totally flat 
And yeah. I think there's a reasonable chance that you could see the Leafs look terrible tonight. There's a reasonable chance of that because you're going to have Florida that's still riding the wave because they just finished. We'll see. Because I think that if the Leafs look good tonight, they're going to win the series. And, and it won't even be a problem, honestly, mm. because they will have somehow relaxed and it'll just, it'll come together. I, but if they come out and they wet the bed tonight, and again, I, I just psychologically, <laughs> psychologically, psych, psychology is such a big part of performance. It really is. And I'm fascinated by it always. I just look at all the psychological bells, bellwethers, markers, whatever, all kind of lead me to say, this could be a game the Leafs really stink. So if they don't, you're going to love what they do. I think the rest of the way. Are you going to Florida? Did you see what they just put as the schedule? I I mean, I know that, you know, it's conspiratorial, but after we talked about this on my show last night, after the Panthers said, we're not going to sell any tickets to Leaf fans. Mm -hmm. Now you've got games on Sunday night and Wednesday. I know there's other factors at play like NBA games and everything, but it's almost like they are trying desperately to even find scheduling ways to make sure that the seven people in the Sunrise Florida market who are fans come out to the games and it's not all blue shirts in the stands. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show, Scott, tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To have the last word. This last word from Mr. Lowe. Rest in peace, Gordon Lightfoot. Now looking down from above with those lost sailors from the Edmund Fitzgerald that you honored in your famous ballad. Thank you, Gordon. 